Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, we're going to get to the episode very quickly this week. I just have two brief items of business. First is we've got a new meditation up on the app, the 10% Happier app. Uh, it's called Letting Go of the Outcome. It's with one of our most popular teachers, Oren Sofer. It's all about how to not be so fixated on getting your way and, and instead staying open, especially in a in a work context, which is quite relevant to what we're going to be talking about on the show this week. Uh, and I struggle with this quite a bit. So uh, I'm going to be using that that meditation. Uh, the other thing I just want to quickly say before we get to the to the interview this week to our guest is uh, I just want to uh, give a big, robust shout out to the folks who have joined our Insiders Feedback Group. This is a, a bunch of listeners who are giving us detailed feedback on every episode as we continue to try to get better at what we do. That feedback, which I see personally is really meaningful and incredibly helpful. So big thank you. All right, let's get to our guest who has an awesome resume. He is both a Zen priest and he has an MBA from New York University, NYU. Uh, Mark Lesser uh, is perhaps best known as one of the architects of the, the famous meditation course that they run for Google employees called Search Inside Yourself. And now it's is run at corporations all over. He uh, has done much more, though. He's founded three companies, including his current company, which is called ZBA, which teaches, uh, helps people integrate uh, meditation and other practices into their work life. He's the author of four books. And as referenced before, he's got an MBA from New York University. Uh, he also began his uh, work career uh, as a resident of the San Francisco Zen Center, where he was a, a Zen priest for 10 years. Uh, he's going to talk about that. You'll hear him talk about that. And and then we get to, after we talk about how he got into meditation, what it was like to be a Zen priest for all that time and why that experience uh, made him fall in love with work, which somehow seems a little incongruous, but he makes it, uh, he makes it uh, make sense. Uh, but then we get into his latest book, which is called The, the Seven Practices of a mindful leader. And by leader, he does not mean some uh, helicopter using uh, CEO. He just means all of us in whatever context uh, we do our work. Uh, many of us, that's uh, in the office, but for others, it may be at home or in a volunteer organization or whatever. And we talk about some of his ideas about how to go about working in a way that can actually be meaningful and can be measurably less miserable. He, in fact, one of the precepts he talks about is, the, is that you can love your work even when it sucks. Um, he talks, and we talk uh, quite in depth about uh, how it, it is not useful to think you are an expert. We talk about being, what is the utility of being connected to your own pain in your life and connected to the pain of other people with whom you work? How can that help in, in a work context? Uh, we talk about the the intensely collaborative nature of workplaces these days and how meditation can make that collaboration uh, even better. And, and I'll let him explain this, uh, he talks a lot about uh, the need, uh, the necessity, the value of the continuous work of making work simpler. 
Mark Lester is a fascinating guy. It was really fun to talk to him. Here he is. Great to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Actually, no, we have met. We, we met very briefly. At an airport? No, we, we met at a conference very briefly. We, we were at a few different, I'm not even sure which one. It was New York or Washington, D.C. or a conference where you were speaking at. I, I might have been doing a workshop at that conference several years ago. Yes, and but then I we feel were, like I, we were at a conference, but we're at the airport leaving or something. Oh, maybe so. with somebody else. May, maybe. Oh, I knew. Were you with Meng, maybe, or that, something that, like that? That, that could be. Yes, that, that's, the, any, that's yeah. the memory I have. Yeah, yeah. And then there was, a, there was an email chain that we were on together for some time having to do uh, yeah, all the, 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 the people in this mindfulness business world were on this email chain. And, huh. so. Well, nice to see you again. It's good to see you, too. <laughs> um, how did you get into meditation? Um, I was, uh, 21 years old. I took a one year leave of absence from Rutgers and I, I went initially to San Francisco to a small community called the Humanist Institute. What, what, why would you have done that? Um, I was, um, I read a book. Uh, <laughs> my first, my first book that drew me in this direction was Abraham Maslow toward a psychology of being. And I was, I had to read this book for college. Uh, I, I discovered that book kind of woke me up to how asleep I was reading about that, this concept of self-actualization and this idea that certain people were more emotional, were happier, were sadder, were more comfortable in their own skins. What does self-actualization mean? Uh, self-actualization, that's, that's a great question. Well, I can tell you, I think that Maslow would define self-actualization as someone who is, it's a high level of emotional intelligence. It's a high level of being more fully aligned as a human being, being more comfortable in your own skin, uh, being comfortable with one's emotions, uh, not being so tossed around by one's inner critic, uh, being, um, being, having the ability to have really good quality, transparent, loving relationships. So to fully feel your emotions, but not to be owned by them. Yes, that would be. A short, a shortcut. Another definition. way of just saying a high level, a high mindfulness quotient. High mindfulness quotient. Though then I would, I kind of maybe even broaden. I think mindfulness, you know, could certainly be defined as right high level of self awareness, ability to deal with difficult emotions, understanding your own motivation, things like empathy, and and this whole broad realm of uh, communication skills and, and social skills. Yeah, and and then I think if I use more the more the older language of mindfulness, I think of it as uh, knowing yourself and going beyond yourself. <laughs> I like I like that language, which is some old old, you know, Zen language. All right, so we're we're far afield from your chronology here, but <laughs> when you say going beyond yourself, I can imagine a listener getting hung up on that. What do you mean by that? Um. How do I go beyond myself? This is all I've got. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's some really simple ways to talk about it. One is that 
you actually care for real about other people. Imagine that, actually really caring about people, and that the world isn't only me, what's good for me, what's bad for me. Of course, we're, we don't have to worry about losing that. Of course, we have to take care of ourselves, and we need, to, we need to have that question about what's good for me, what's not good for me. But I think uh, going beyond ourselves is, one, in relation to other people, is really caring about other people. And I think it even goes beyond that. I think even beyond other people, it's having a sense of, a sense of connectedness, a sense of belonging to this earth, this place, that we're not so always caught up on what's going to be what, our, our own getting ahead and our own achievement. So we feel a sense of safety, a radical sense of safety would be, so I would say safety, a radical sense of uh, not needing anything right now, and, and connection, that those three things, which in some way, from a you know, psychology, I think would say these are three uh, basic human needs that we have. I, um, listening to you talk, I had two things that came up in my head. First of all, when you talked about belonging to this earth and all that stuff, my, my inner um, policeman of like, don't talk that way goes off. Like, a, what, what does that mean? Belonging to this or that? That's like the the kindergarten teacher who was making me sing Kumbaya would say some stuff like that. So I, I get that a little bit. But then I also, what I what comes up is a little bit of the first time I went on a meditation retreat, and I wrote about this in my first book, the first time I went on a meditation retreat where you're doing nothing but meditating all day, I hated it at first. I hated everybody. I hated everybody who told me to do the thing. I hate I just was full of hate and resentment and frustration, mostly really at myself for being unable to, quote unquote, unable to meditate. But then I had this, for lack of a better word, kind of breakthrough um, where I had 36 hours of really, I had really stopped struggling so much and and was very much right where I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I had to whittle down the intellectual takeaway from that, the, what, what was, what, what felt, I mean, a lot of it was beyond conceptual and firmly in the perceptual mm-hmm. in that I was just seeing, hearing, smelling, whatever. And and there's a lot when the mental chatter goes down and you're actually living your life mm-hmm. as it's presented to you through your senses at any given moment, that can be accompanied with a lot of happiness. But the intellectual, the conceptual thing that I, that I remember was everything's okay. Mm-hmm. I just felt like, all right, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And that, came up for me as you were talking about this radical sense of safety and belonging on this earth, which again, part of me rebels against. Anyway, does any of the foregoing make any sense to you? Totally, totally. So I think in some way, you know, very practically, this is where I think that uh, meditation practice and daily life come together, right? To me, the experience that you were just describing, the sense that everything's okay right now, that the the mental chatter kind of quieted a little bit and and there was something that you that you felt to me it's like that's great that's that's what happens often when you sit retreats when you sit multi-day retreats you get sick of yourself you get you, you get completely sick 
of the thing that we call I and me and your own story, there's something about uh, you get to see that at some level it's made up. It, it's, it's, it's something that we create, the story of, of me and I. And you, you just get a sense of it. By, you, you, get, you get a sense of it when you sit for multi-days. So imagine that you let that permeate into your bones in a way and that there's some of that in how you are in the rest of your life uh, as a leader or as a husband or as a son or anything that, that it's just, it's, it's like it's really small. And I, I know it can sound a little, you know, kumbayaish, uh, but I think it is potent. It's a really potent, life-changing experience if you can have that experience in meditation it also can happen i think in other in other ways something that really grabs your attention and shows you that things are not quite as black and white the story isn't quite as solid as what you thought it gives you great i think it gives you a kind of uh flexibility and and power it's a little bit like you know people often say you know, well, life is short, right? Life is short. Therefore, you should live in a certain, you should live as though life is short. Well, that's easy to say, but it's harder to do. And I think this, it's that same sensibility that, that what you're describing in meditation is that life and you aren't quite what you had thought they were three days before when you started this retreat. Yes. I thoroughly derailed you. Let me just go <laughs> back to let's, you. Let's start again. Yeah, let's talk about you. Um, <laughs> because I want to get to how we, and I know you have a lot to say about this, how we sort of operationalize, how we how we can have this insight in the first place, and then how we operationalize it in our life. I want to get to that. But I, I first want to walk through a little bit of how you got to where you are. So you read this book by Maslow. Uh, and you're 21 and you realize that you'd been asleep most of your life. And it was, it, it was enough of a jolt that it got you to take a year off from college. It was a jolt. I think it got me to read a lot more. It got me to start read. Like suddenly I was passionate about reading and learning, which I hadn't been so much. And I started reading everything I could about humanistic psychology and existentialism, and even a book about Zen, Alan Watts, The Way of Zen came my way. And all of this was like, wow, like, this is amazing stuff. This is so much more interesting, relevant than the courses I was taking at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And and there was something, I I think, too... um, yeah, and I just felt like I need to go explore this part of my life. I found out about a program in San Francisco. A, a, a friend of my older brother's came back from San Francisco, the land where people were actually doing meditation and studying Eastern and Western mysticism. Was and it this in the 70s? This was in the 70s, okay. yep. And um, I decided to take a year leave of absence to go explore, went to uh, – and. It was it was a particular program that at the time they were connected to Sonoma State University, so I could sell it to my parents as, oh, I'm going to go right to graduate school, um, even though I hadn't finished my undergraduate degree. And then while I was in San Francisco, I someone handed me a book called the Tassajara Bread Book, and the Tassajara Bread Book Bread Book. It's a book about baking bread, 
that happened to come out of a Zen monastery called Tassajara, which was part of the San Francisco Zen Center. And this book, uh, it uh, not only was it about baking bread, but it was about studying yourself and going beyond yourself through the practice of baking bread. It was also had a sense of humor. It didn't take itself too seriously. And all these things attracted me to this place called the, the San Francisco Zen Center. And I was working at the time. I had a job downtown San Francisco just doing office work. And the bus, the six Masonic bus, every day went right by the, the Zen Center on you know the corner of Page and Laguna. I got off the bus one day and walked in. And I completely felt like... Uh, I felt at home in this place that um, it was it was beautiful and smelled good and felt good and it, it was very clean and the people were super friendly and uh, and they had basically there was no proselytizing at all it was like our doors open every morning five thirty you want to come sit meditation you can always come sit I started sitting meditation at the Zen Center and. Uh, I ended up staying there for that one year leave of absence turned into 10 years. <laughs> and, uh, and it was in so a, you never finished college. I did after 10, years. after 10 years <laughs> and came back 10 years later, came back and went right to business school and got an MBA degree because, uh, during that 10 year time work became a really core part of my practice and the relationship of meditation practice and work practice were very much integrated. So let me just, so you, you go, you spend 10 years at the Zen center and then you spend 10, you go back and finish college and there's another 10 years of work and college and MBA. And then you go back for another 10 years at, no, 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 okay. no. So no, just, um, just 10, 10 years at the Zen center went to, went and got MBA degree. And then I started, uh, Companies started companies and, and dove into the world of work. Where did you do your MBA? New York University, right here in this lovely town. And what kind of companies were you starting? I started a publishing company, uh, one of the first companies in the world to make things out of recycled paper. Hmm. Uh, this was in 1989. I started a company called Brush Dance. And um, yeah, I. My my first job out of business school was in San Francisco working for a distributor of recycled paper. So I had this idea. I mean, I, my my strong idea was, one, there there must be a way to bring this, th these practices that I had been so involved with at the Zen Center. So I had, one of the things that happened at the Zen Center was I kept getting asked to take on more and more responsibility in different areas of the organization including running a kitchen in a Zen monastery. And the Zen monastery turns into a resort in the summertime, this place called Tassajara. And they have a reputation for high-quality uh, vegetarian, gourmet vegetarian food. So this kitchen was like a pretty serious place of learning to cook, learning to produce the highest-quality food for 70 or 80 overnight guests in the summer, because in the summertime, it turned into a, a resort and conference center, still is. And uh, I got this experience of, of loving work right in the midst of a 
what was a, basically a commercial kitchen with tremendous amount of uh, pressure, intensity, things going wrong, people working closely together. It was hot. And yet there was a way that the work was very intentional about learning to know about yourself and going beyond yourself in the midst of this work practice. Were you a monk? I was a monk. I mean, a monk A monk is someone who lives in a monastic setting. Now, this was a U.S. California monk, very different than when you say that word. There were men and women practicing together. And, I mean, I have some friends who are Zen priests, and they're married. Yes. So it's not like a uh, we th- we use the word monk in the Western context. We think celibacy, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I'm a Zen priest. I'm married. I have children. I've been CEO of several companies. I'm CEO of a company right right now. Uh, so I uh, I very much live a life that kind of integrates again what what I think appears as two separate things: these contemplative practice and and living out in the world. Um, to me, my aspiration is to have it be one world. It's the world. It's the world of being a human being and showing up as, as fully, as best, as compassionately, as responsively as I know how. But to, let me just go back to your ten years for a second in the monastery. So you were a monk, uh, w- but you were also working. So were, were you doing long periods of? A retreat too, and uh, how, how much meditation training happened? Yeah, a lot, a lot of meditation training, uh, and a good deal of work were happening at the same time. So I did. I've done, you know, many, many uh, seven-day retreats. Um, I've done. Oh, at at Tassajara, the core practice is ninety-day retreats, uh, in which there is maybe five hours a day of sitting practice. Now, if you work in the kitchen, like I did, maybe you only sit for three hours a day. Uh, there's less There's less meditation uh, and there's more focus on, on work practice. And if you're working in the kitchen, you have to talk, so it's not a silent retreat. That's right, yeah. And, and I would say uh, people who are working in any parts of the, of the organization are, uh, are talking. There's a lot of silence. So pretty much every day from... You know, from dinner time, uh, starting at dinner till, oh, generally until mid-morning, maybe the next day, is silent time. And then there's a work meeting and you're, you know, more more normalized. Although even the sensibility is that the talking is less chit-chat and more talk that you need to have in terms of the work. And there was also time for connecting with people and being in relationship. And there was also a good deal of kind of teacher-student discussions and talking about what you were working with. It's so interesting, the different traditions. So I go on meditation retreats in the Theravada tradition. Um, And even within Theravada, it's hard to be overly general because there are lots of schools within Theravada. So Theravada, just for the uninitiated here, is one of the four schools of Buddhism was is Theravada, uh, Zen, Tibetan, um, Holy. Uh, um, um, uh, what's the, the land? Uh, the, um, pure land. Pure there's, land. There's many. There's many. Many. many, many there's many schools. Yeah, well, I don't know why yeah. I said four. So anyway, many schools of Buddhism. So Theravada is kind of the old school. Uh, literally, it's the oldest school. Uh, 
And in these retreats that I go on, you, there's no talking. Mm-hmm. I mean, no talking, 10 days or three months or whatever. I'm, I've, the longest I've done is 11 days. But people go three months, they go longer. Um, and but, but, you, but the Zen tradition, at least the, the part you're – and there, there are many schools within Zen too. But the Zen tradition that you're a part of, there is talking. So it's a, such an interesting uh, way to – a difference in the way to approach a retreat. So in the in the Zen tradition that I'm part of, familiar with, uh, there are retreats like so seven day, seven day retreats, no talking. They're called sashins. They're called sashins, right? Seven day sash- retreats called sashins. There'd be no talking there, um, but when you do a ninety day practice period, there's there's you know people, especially the func- especially an emphasis on functional talk, because work is such a part of the practice. Yeah, there's a couple. You've brought up this term work a lot, and mm-hmm. I haven't I'll let you sort of expound upon it. Um, but it seems to be really important. There's some, something you got in, not in the pejorative, but like kind of a bee in your bonnet about the connection between practice and work during these 10 years. So what? why did that become so important to you? Um, I found that I, 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 I just loved working. I loved the the work that I had. And I can remember... Even while I was that time when I was living at the Zen Center, there was all of this uh, statistics about that people didn't like work. That that there were even now, you know, there's. I think that you've probably seen all the latest statistics. Of course, you're an expert at this, right? That that two thirds of American workers say they don't feel engaged in what they do. The level of things, not only in disengagement, but you know, suicides and people feeling incredibly unhappy in their workplace. And I I had a strong sense that a way to change this is to integrate more this sense of meditation practice, contemplative practice with with work. So I know you said that after business school you went and started some companies. Were you trying to put into practice this sort of philosophy that you were working on? I was. And and I found out how hard it is. It's hard. <laughs> I mean there is there is, and I, I talk about it all the time, there's a natural tension that exists between, right, meditation practice, contemplative practice, right, the practice of, of being, more beingness, and the practice of getting stuff done, of getting things done in the world, of meeting goals, of making money, of being responsible for financial statements. There's tension there. But I think it can be a positive and healthy tension. I deal with this a lot. I'm sure you do. I deal with it a lot. Yeah. And not only here at ABC News, because I have two sort of professional homes, ABC News and 10% Happier, which in it is its own company growing. And, and, and there, people really take meditation much more seriously. Although there are a lot of meditators here at ABC News, the whole company at 10% Happier is geared toward meditation. And so... Yeah, that tension and my style being raised in, the, you know, in this ABC, ABC News, I've been here for 19 years. When I first got here, it was very hierarchical, sort of militaristic, tough, not very kind. It has really changed. It's much more, um, much more collegial now than it's, than it's ever been. But that's in me. And um I act it out sometimes, and people don't like it, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the ten percent happier. Mm-hmm. And so that 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 marriage is something that's very very much a dynamic tension in my life. Yeah, um, beautiful. I think it's a 
Uh, I think it's a really important tension to to recognize, and I think this to me is, you know, it's not an accident that workplaces all over the world have adopted emotional intelligence because they can see. I mean, the world is really changing, right? The world. It wasn't that long ago when the militaristic sense, the this, the uh, there was an assembly line, and there still is in many places. What I think of as an assembly line mentality about work, that the underlying assumption is you need to take the humanness out of people and just get them to do their job. Now, this may be true. You know, it's tr- maybe true on the factory floor. Actually, I I don't think it's even true there any, anymore. That I think there's more and more evidence that the more we can bring in humanness, uh, good good communication skills, uh, being more aligned with yourself and what you're doing is good for business, is good for work. It isn't going to solve, it isn't going to completely solve this, this innate tension that we're talking about, but it'll go a long way to making it uh, a much healthier, di- more dynamic workplace. Well, what do you mean by humanness? I, I feel like that could devolve into a bromide if, if we're not specific about it. Um, I mean emotional intelligence. I mean understanding your – I mean basically I mean self-awareness, essentially self-awareness, understanding. So you were just talking about you have these particular proclivities that you bring and it's partly – it sounds – and it's probably a combination of the training that you had before when, when the business was more militaristic and it's probably, I'm guessing, just your own, your own innate personality that that shows up not only at work but in all parts of your life. Yes. And, you, and if you're lucky enough to be in relationship, and if you're really lucky, to me, I I, I think the most advanced practice, if you really want to practice, be in relationship, and then if you're, you know, and then have kids, and then you'll really find out your own level of emotional intelligence. You'll really find out. As a brief aside, John (laughs) Kabat-Zinn, the legendary meditation teacher and author, when I had, uh, when Bianca and I had our first child four years ago, he said to me, the Dalai Lama just moved into your house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, oddly enough, work can can also be advanced practice, Can can be a great place to learn about yourself and cultivate greater, I mean, it's good to be, I think it's really good to be in really difficult, high-pressured situations where there is this tension. How do you show up when, you know, you're running a company and you don't have money to pay payroll? How do you show up when, you know, you find out that, you know, you, uh, the the new product that you just launched is totally failing? <laughs> and uh, and you need to raise more investment money or any, you know, or you have a difficult boss. How do you deal with these? These are such, I think, such rich things, such real rich things to deal with, as opposed to pretending that they don't exist or to run away from them or to, or to, or to feel, or to feel like you're the victim of this difficult mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean. In answer to your question, that's the, the humanness is noticing what our natural tendencies are, what our proclivities are, and then finding skillful ways to, to work with them. All right. So I have a million questions, but I am most of them from a very selfish standpoint. And like <laughs> I want free therapy here, so which I often do. And I reserve the right to to uh, to revert to that. But um, I think maybe the way to approach now that you've kind of set the table in the way you have 
the way to approach uh, the rest of this conversation would be through the lens of your new book. So let's talk about what's the title. What, what what's um, what what's the con what the conceit here? Right. Uh, the title is Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, and the subtitle is Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. Um, and when you say leader, I just want to hone in on that because some people might think, well, I'm not the CEO of anything, so would, uh, why do I, I don't need this book. Yes, so everyone's a leader. Um, it's it Again, it's a bridging word in that, yes, of course, there are people who are in roles of leadership or have been or will be. So there there are some particular skills and competencies that go with leadership. But I think of it as much broader in that leadership is essentially about influence. How how do we influence other people? And we all influence other people, whether we're on a team, whether we're in a family. But there's a sense, again, leader implies a sense of the work world. So I think the the focus of the book is about how to how to integrate mindfulness practice in our lives at work. And for most people, most people spend more time at work than any other part of their lives. I did say I wanted to dive into the book, but in reading, in reciting your subtitle, I realized that I left out a key part of your biography, which is Google. So you not only after business school started founding companies, but then you, if I understand correctly, moved into really bringing these practices into major corporations. So can you just describe that part of your life? And then we'll, I promise we'll get back to the book. Yes. Yes. So uh, I ran this uh, this publishing company that I mentioned for 15 years. And then I, I started a uh, executive coaching practice, doing some consulting coaching, and found myself working with some uh, as a coach to several Google engineers, and and it was right at the time when this Google engineer named Meng, he had the idea of creating a program that brought mindfulness meditation into Google, and. Uh, at the at the time I met him, he only had the name. Uh, the name he knew was a jo- was kind of a joke called "Search Inside Yourself," and someone introduced him to me, saying that he found that there was this guy who had um, Meng used to introduce me as having uh, ten thousand hours of meditation practice, uh, an MBA, and started and ran several companies, and and that's exactly who he was looking for to help develop this program inside of Google. So I found myself as uh, part of an early team of people uh, creating, making up this program and, and this challenge of how can you bring mindfulness, meditation, emotional intelligence, and teach Google engineers. And, and that was, so that was the, that was the challenge. Uh, Meng and I and a few other people started this program and it became it took a little while. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't exactly an overnight success, but I'd say in year two or three, suddenly it had become more and more successful. And we noticed that people were like, they would announce that we were going to do one of these programs at the time. It was a seven week program. And with at Google, at Google, the employees, it, yeah. yeah. And literally within seconds, it would be sold out and there'd be waiting lists. And then there were waiting lists of hundreds. and So there was word of mouth that there was this program that you could learn to meditate and that you could get some of the basic skills about how to communicate better with the people on your team, 
as a combination of well-being, productivity, and leadership skills that we were teaching in this program. I want to put it, I just want to say a few things to, um, first of all, another person on your team was Mirabai Bush, if mm-hmm. I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. She's a recent guest on this podcast. So if people want to listen to Mirabai's perspective on all of this, you, sh- you can go back a few episodes and hear that. And Meng himself has been a guest, a really early guest on the show. Uh, so you can also listen to that. I also want to say, and I'm going to put a pin in this and we'll come back to it, there's been some controversy around Meng himself, which I discussed with Mirabai and we should talk about as well because it does relate to workplace culture. So we'll get back to that. Um, but thank you for filling in the gaps on the on the Google and I should uh, on the, on search inside yourself. It still exists, if I understand, not only within Google but also working with other corporations. Yes. So in um, in the year 2012 – uh, Meng and I decided to, it was time to bring this work outside of Google. And we created a, a an organization, a nonprofit called the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. I was the CEO. Uh, Meng was the chairman of the board. And off we went to uh, work on how do we expand this work. And we were um, incredibly successful, like right from right from day one, we had organizations, the timing, the timing couldn't have been better. So it was great timing in terms of mindfulness being more and more accepted and also having the, the credibility that this program was developed inside of Google didn't hurt at all either. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. All right, back to the book, yes. as promised. Yes, um, so the book. Yes. So, you know, one of the things that uh, I, I, I wrote this book in part because I felt that there was a lot of misunderstanding about what mindfulness was, that it was um, people were more and more skimming the surface when they talked about this thing called mindfulness. And then I thought there was even less understanding about the idea of this, this integration of mindfulness in the workplace. And this had become my life. I had been doing this now for 30-something years. And I wrote the book as a way of addressing that, that issue. And 
And what I realize now, often people will ask me, well, what do I mean by mindfulness? What's my definition? And I think that the seven practices that I talk about in the book are a pretty good way in to describing what I would say mindfulness practices. So mindfulness practice, love the work, do the work, don't be an expert, connect to your pain, connect to the pain of others, depend on others, and keep making it simpler. (laughs) All right, let's walk through these. (laughs) Love the work. Yeah. So love the work, unlike people often think that what it means is to love the particular job or role that you're doing. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, a lot of us hate. Well, I, I don't, but but uh, there are many, many people, and I have compassion for them, who are stuck in jobs that they, they, the actual doing of the job it is hard to love. Right. So the beauty of this practice is this is loving the work of meditation, loving the work of mindfulness, loving lo- loving self-awareness and loving knowing yourself and going beyond yourself, loving that work, that work of self-discovery, to fall in love with that as, a, as, your real, as your real work and see that you can do that in any job, even a job you hate. You can still, and in a way, it's actually very empowering when you take on the work of knowing more and more about your own proclivities and your own way of how you embody your own power, how you give away your power, how you feel like a victim, how you don't feel like a victim, all those, all those kind of human tendencies that we have to love that, that work. How do we even begin to love, start, you know, to gun to our heads, how do we start falling in love <laughs> with this work that you're describing? I think I have a feeling, Dan, that you, went, as you describe your first retreat that you did, that you kind of fell in love with this work. Wouldn't, yes. you, wouldn't you say? I would. But yeah. it's hard to force yourself to do that. You can't force yourself to do that. Right? <laughs> but, you can, but you can experience it. You can create the conditions where it's more likely. For that's, sure. that's right. So I would say that, um, yeah. So do what you can to create the conditions to love the work, which might be from, you know, sitting a seven-day retreat like you did, or a 10-day retreat, seven or seven, ten, 10-day retreat, or a one-day retreat, or, or just start sitting just have a regular meditation practice and read and spend time with spend some time with maybe listen some, to awesome podcasts listen to awesome podcasts <laughs> that's right and there's so many listen to podcasts listen to awesome uh spiritual lectures that are around or or people who are who are involved in uh in doing this work so this is the practice of loving the work but then the second of the seven practices— Hold on, I'm going to stay loving the work for a okay. second. Because sure. basically what you're describing is just you're encouraging what happened to you at age 21 at Rutgers. You're basically saying, love the work of waking up. We walk around and we're sleepwalking most mm-hmm. of our lives. Mm-hmm. We're on autopilot. Right. And it is, in my experience, infinitely interesting— to wake up out of that because you keep falling back asleep. And so the waking it, the, and you, then you wake up to new levels of it and, and over and over learning how to actually be alive is an interesting job. Exactly. You got it right. Learning, learning how to be alive, how a part of loving the work you might, you might, if you want to replace love, if, if you have trouble with the word love, you can say appreciate the work, like developing an appreciation for being alive, appreciating being alive appreciating even 
the things that are difficult and ornery and, and the, you know, appreciating the difficulty that we have in, in our work. And, and somehow it's a, it's, it's a small, it's a subtle but major shift. And now I'm in a different relationship with, with this job. Now this, now this job that I'm not liking, I get to ask, what is it about? What, what is it? What am I doing? Is there something that I'm doing? What am I bringing to this situation? Now, there are toxic situations. So I don't want to, you know, there are people who work in toxic situations and, and it's probably best to look for ways out of that. Mostly though, people, we all bring our own particular proclivities, our own, our own habits, our own assumptions, deep, deep assumptions. Again, it's, you can get very, psychological, very spiritual, but this is the, this is the work. It's the work of understanding ourselves as human beings, appreciating. Yeah. And I would say, um, based on my own experiences, just talking to other people that seeing the difficult stuff, particularly about yourself, that is in some ways the delicacy, right? The, and I don't mean like you need to do it delicately, but that is also true. I mean, more like the most delicious part is the is this seeing you know what a capacity to be a monster you have because it's when you see it that it no longer has such an opportunity to own you yeah i mean and i you know uh i get to see it all the time right so i'm I, I, there's a joke amongst mindfulness teachers how stressful it is to be a mindfulness teacher right as or how you know preparing preparing to teach can be can be stressful and how do you deal with that um you know, i have my own my own high standards, my own inner critic, and yet I'm I'm really good. I'm really good at teaching people how to quell, how to tampen down your inner critic. And I know this is a strong and important skill to have. And yet, it's something, you know, it's part of being human. So you 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 beat yourself up still. I do. But what mostly? <laughs> oh, um, I would say about. Maybe the uh, about finding and feeling my own sense of power. The question for me, an ongoing question for me, is what is my real power, and how do I express it? What do you mean by power in this context? <laughs> so we're getting yeah. Uh, what I mean by power. Wait, am I skipping ahead to another? Uh, no, no, another, it's okay. okay. It's it's okay. Uh, I'm determined to ruin every everything. It's always. good. It's good. I love it. I love it. <laughs> It's actually, it's funny. We are skipping ahead because this is my next book. I'm really, I'm really, I'm really interested in this subject of power. And in fact, I just, I just wrote a blog uh, this week in which I tell the story of I was 26 years old, and one of my teachers at the Zen Center looked at me and said, "Mark, you have a way of giving away your power or pissing away your power," and. I knew this wasn't a compliment. <laughs> it my, my, really. my expensive Zen training, right? <laughs> how, how, however, it was like, what power did she see in me that I was totally unaware of as a 26-year-old? 20, now, I've been studying power. Power basically is the, the ability to self-actualize, going back to that word, and the ability to influence in a, in a positive, I would say the positive power is to influence in a wholesome and positive way, to help people be more themselves, to help people see more reality. We often, we, you know, we humans, we live in a, you know, 
You know, one of the things I loved about uh, two of the books that I've been recommending a lot lately, uh, Yuval Noah Harari's books, Sapiens and, and Homo Deus, partly because he sees the world through the lens of fiction, and he uses that language, that we live so much in the world of fiction. So I would say power is living in the real world. Power is being able to see more reality and not being so caught by the stories that we tell ourselves. But most of us think of power as just being able to get other people to bend to our will. Yeah, this is that negative, this is the negative rap power has. But I think power has a very positive sense too that now, especially for people who are in positions, who are in roles of power, this is getting back to what you were saying earlier about the militaristic way of work. This is no longer cutting it that now we have to find out how we can influence in a different way without bending people to do what so, we want so them to. So when you beat yourself up, up about your own use of your power, what do you what is that what does that look like? It it it's for me it's seeing the ways that I feel like I'm not completely trusting myself. I'm not completely aligned in my own sense of what it is I want to accomplish and what I'm doing. Um I think my my own my own early training as a as a child was to feel like I'm the victim. Uh, you know, I, I grew up with a, uh, a manic depressive father and I grew up in a place where, and of course it was never talked about. Nothing, everything was always fine in my childhood. It was, everything was always fine. Anything that was difficult was always swept under the rug. And I think I, I learned uh, great strategies for pushing away what was difficult or, or stressful. So part of my waking up back you know, when I was in my early 20s, and this is part of my waking up today, is to turn toward what's difficult, to look at what's uncomfortable, to not pretend that it doesn't exist. So that's, I'd say, that's how I give away my power these days, is by turning away from what's difficult. And what would that look like? Oh, um, what would that look like? Oh, lots of ways. So like here I am, you know, I'm in the, I'm, I'm thinking of um, how can I have the most influence and impact in my life right now? What is that? What does that look like? Uh, and so what that being fully empowered for me would be being completely comfortable in my own skin and not, not overshooting what's possible and not undershooting what's possible to find where's the where's the place one of one of my questions for myself is uh, where can i have the most positive impact how can i best use my own skills my own abilities and and the other question i have is and what do i most love doing what do i really enjoy and then the third part of that for me is and what sustains me financially? What does financial sustainability look like? So those are those to me alignment and my and being in my own power looks like having the most positive impact I can have, loving what I'm doing, and financial sustainability. And you find sometimes that because the, the, once you add in finance, it, that's where the tension can come. You find that trying to trying to do all of this. Well, you pick on yourself a little bit about whether you're doing a good enough job in this context. Yeah, in a way. I mean, I can I can see the decisions I'm making. Like sometimes 
sometimes maybe I'm, um, oh, I'm, I'm really loving this, but it's not really having as much impact as I wish it would and, and not, not financially sustainable. Or finding, oh, I'm doing this thing. This thing really pays well, but really? Am I, do, I, do I really want to be doing this particular role with this, with this particular organization? So yes, I'm um, somewhere between, I think the positive side would, meet, would be assessing how I'm doing and the negative side would be beating myself up about it. Right. Well, I think we all walk that line. Most of us probably, well, I don't know. I'll just speak for myself. I think I often err on the side of beating myself up. But um, it's interesting when you talk about, because essentially you're talking about that you, you switch, in, in, from what I was hearing, talking about power in, in a sense to talking about motivation. And uh, this, that, that's what I heard. Yeah. And maybe it's, I heard it just because it's something I think about a lot in my own life. That uh, I wish that as I or I aspire in my own life to think about what's my job on the planet for my remaining time mm-hmm. um, in the within the context of how can I help the most people is mm-hmm. essentially what I heard you saying um, with the third thing being remuneration mm-hmm. and the financial. But I I find that there are other that finance. If I'm being honest looms larger mm-hmm. sometimes that I'm comfortable admitting. Um, and also then there's this other thing around my ego and, 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 mm-hmm. you know, people coming up and saying hello to me in an airport mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a whole thing in there too. And mm-hmm. if that's an interesting thing for me to navigate as I, that's, that was what was coming up in my head as you spoke. Sure. Sure. You know, I think, uh, from a societal perspective, Often people are are just asking the financial numeration question, right? That that often drives what people do, and then they wake up and find out that they're not so not very happy. This is pretty pretty common experience, and not to you know not to downplay that the financial numeration piece is it's a it's a big one. It's not a small one, especially in you know here I am in in New York City and seeing take some real money if you want to if you want to live here if you want to do things here. So back to the book. Okay. So number two was do the work. Do the work. So, so first of all, I want to just say that um, the way these seven practices emerged was in the context of training a group of Google engineers how to be mindfulness teachers. And as we were looking about how we could spread and scale this work within Google, we decided we needed to train some Google employees to teach this work and that would be one way to to spread it. And this was the first time that we were doing one of these trainings. Actually it was kind of a kind of a funny story in that I was sitting next to Meng was on one side of me in this room of a dozen Google engineers. And we brought in a man named Norman Fisher, who is a leading uh, Zen teacher and poet and writer. Yes, and he's booked to be on this podcast soon. Excellent. Excellent. Norman's wonderful. So uh we invited Norman in to to talk to the group. And uh, as the meeting was starting, I, I looked at the agenda, and the next thing that was supposed to happen right after we started the meeting was it said, Norman gives talk about mindfulness. And I had a pretty strong feeling no one had told this to Norman. So I just took the agenda, and I put it in front of him, and he very nonchalantly got out a piece of paper and a pen and took some notes and proceeded to give a talk about 
these are the seven practices that he was recommending are most important to embody, to value as a, as a mindfulness teacher. And I thought these practices were just right on, were just perfect, not only as a mindfulness teacher, but I immediately thought, this is how I want to run my company. This is how I want to run the institute that I had started. And even broader than that, I thought, this is how I want to live my life, according to these seven practices. So I wrote them down. I put them on everyone's desk. We had about 20 employees at the time. And I started reading. I started writing about them and talking about these seven practices. And a book started to emerge. And maybe a couple years into that, I I called Norman. And I said, Norman, I'm feeling a little funny now because a book is starting to emerge about these seven practices that you described at Google a couple of years ago. And Norman says, what seven practices? <laughs> he, 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 he literally, literally had no idea what I was talking about. Uh, I read Norman the practices and he said, those are, those are pretty good and good luck with your book. <laughs> so um, uh, that's, that's where they came from. Uh, and and um, yeah, so love the work. Then the second practice is do the work, which is that you actually need to have a daily meditation practice. So I like to break the work into two big buckets, a dedicated practice and integrated practice. So dedicated practice is the, the, the practice you're doing when you step outside of the stream of your daily life. Meditation, journal writing might be a, a dedicated practice walking meditation. And then the other big bucket is integrated practice, which is when you get up from your cushion or when you stop writing, how are you bringing this work into your, your relationships, your work, all parts of your life? So this is do the work, is to have these, these practices. Third. Third, don't be an expert. So this is, there's an expression in Zen, uh, beginner's mind. I'm, I, I suspect that that's what you're saying here. I'm saying that, yes. Yes, it's, um, in fact, uh, out of the San Francisco Zen Center, the famous book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, uh, where, where Suzuki Roshi famously says, right, in the, in the expert's mind, there are very few possibilities, right? In the, um, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. And I think, again, I like to clarify, of course, I want my surgeon and my car mechanic to be experts at what they do. However, I want them to have flexible enough minds to, to be able to be creative if something were to go wrong. But beyond that, beginner's mind or not being an expert is much more about relationships. Mm. None of us are experts. Uh, anyone who tells you that they're an expert in their relationships, um, I, would, I would run the other way. And, and whether you are a leader or a team member or in any relationship, it's uh, this this human this human relationship thing. It really takes uh, not being not being an expert, and and there's no one who's an expert. I believe when it comes to mindfulness and meditation. Um, again, you want someone who has a lot of experience. It's good to have a lot of experience. Uh, you know, I've been. Um, you know, I'm not getting any younger, Dan. I'm. I've been sitting pretty much every day for the last, um, you know, 45 years. Um, and I still feel very much like a beginner when it comes to my meditation practice, my mindfulness practice, certainly my uh, relationship practice. My, 
my wife thinks it's hilarious that I'm teaching emotional intelligence, <laughs> right? This this guy, uh, you know, I've I, I feel like I, but I've learned so much uh, from my work uh, roles that I've had. You know, starting with running a Zen monastery kitchen, I was then the director of this place called Tassahara, CEO of companies. It's just a great, incredible learning place about about yourself. And this again, this back to, uh, you know, knowing yourself and going going beyond yourself. So, don't be an expert. Core core practice. Four. Connect to your own pain. Again, it's you know you might you 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 you're enough of a student of Buddhism that it's Buddhism one hundred and one. It starts you know the the first of the four noble truths is life is hard. Don't. You know, so it's essentially saying, uh, don't push away what's difficult. Don't push away what's difficult. In fact, connect, connect to what's difficult on on all levels. Connect to what's difficult about things you're getting that you don't want, things you want that you're not getting. Uh, but then there's the you know the bigger questions of uh, if you're lucky, you're subject to old age, sickness, and death. So it's recognizing that our lives are limited. It's recognizing that uh, being a human being is just a tough gig. It's a tough gig. And it's part of our common humanity uh, of seeing how that there are many, many difficulties in, be- in being human. And this goes nicely into the next practice, which is connecting to the pain of others, uh, which you could talk about. Again, there's, if, you, if you're research-oriented, there's tremendous amount of research saying in the work world, uh, the more responsibility we take on in in work, the less empathy we demonstrate. That we connect, we connect less and less with the common humanity, with the with the pain of of others. This has happened to me at times, and what, I'm, I'm really working on it. Yeah, how has it happened to you? That well, I've talked about this in the podcast before, so some of the listeners will be familiar with this. But about Nine months ago, I had a 360 review, which is where, where you know you ask people who you work for, who are your peers, people who work for you, and then in my case, also people in my personal life. So it was like I, I call it a sort of a 360 bordering on a colonoscopy, where 16 people give these anonymous hour-long interviews, and then a report is written up and handed to me, and it was very clear to me that I. I mean, I knew some of this, but I didn't know it as powerfully as, as when I read it that I was I was and and I am, although I've been working on it a lot, overloaded, I'd taken on too much as an ABC News anchorman and also with this growing company and giving speeches and writing books. And it was making me hard to be around. Yeah. Um, it was also making me hard to be me. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, so I, th- it was, I think those two things are inexorably inexorably connected. Um, so yeah, so I, I resonate with that. Yeah, and very common. I mean, I've had it. <clears throat> I, I've also been through many, many of these three sixties, these anonymous surveys, and it's it's it can be hard to collect the data to see the ways that the way we think about ourselves may be different than how others see us. Definitely. I often say, you know, I'll, I'll be um, working with leaders who, who think that they are good listeners. If everyone around you says you're not a good listener, you're not a good listener. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so connect to your pain and c- connect to the pain of others. Uh, then the, the sixth practice is uh, depend on others, uh, which again, 
goes against what I like. These practices go against the usual conventional grain, you know, where our culture is so much about independence and, you know, do it yourself. But so much, uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. So much of the work world these days is about collaboration. Almost everything we do, we're depending on others. There's some studies that show that actually work has moved very powerfully toward project um, based uh, uh, collaborative projects. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, I saw this paper, this study that came out of Harvard and it was like collaboration is like the new word. I'm amazed. Like I go in these days to corporations like Google or SAP and you see just looking at who works there, it's people from so many different cultures and it's so common that people are working in different cultures and different time zones and needing to get stuff done Mm -hmm. with other people who have in- incredibly different values and backgrounds. And so amazing, the the importance of depending on others, such a core practice. You know, there's a great article in the New York Times I read recently, and I think it's a couple of years old. I think it was from the New York Times Magazine. I'll try to put this, I'll try to remember to put this in the show notes, um, about a study that was, a, a big study that was done. I think, I think the author of this article was the guy who wrote... Um, the Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg. Uh-huh. And he wrote, and I think it was maybe an excerpt from his follow-on book, he wrote about the studies that were done at Google about what makes a successful team. And I think it, it boiled down to this concept of psychological safety, which means are you comfortable speaking up? Yeah, yeah. This, um, uh, this study is in that chapter, Depend on Others, in my book. It's called uh, Google Aristotle, right, in which they – they spent a good deal of resources and time and money and energy into the, coming to that conclusion that it was also one of the things they found that it, that there were norms in groups, that there were uh, hard to identify assumptions in how people work together. So the one you're putting your finger on is that, right, people spoke at about the same amount of time. No one, no one took over uh, particular groups, right, psychological Safety. Yeah, one of the big le- learnings for me in my 360 was I was not creating psychological safety, so I've been really attuned to that. Yes, and really hard. It's really hard to do. It takes it. So you can't. It has to be more than idea. You have to somehow embody a sense of I think of being more comfortable in your own skin, and then actually caring about these other humans beyond what their roles are. And again, there's always tension there. Because people at work do play a role. They do need to get stuff done. But at the same time, they're human beings. So, so I, know, I know we're going to, we still have to get to seven, right? <laughs> yes, one so, more. But, one but, more. but um, the, so one of the things I think about, we're doing a lot of this work um, internally at 10% Happier. We have a, a committee set up around diversity and inclusion, but it's also really veering heavily into our culture. Mm-hmm. And the idea of, you know, that now I'm going to resort to sort of platitudes here, but like allowing people to show, bring their whole selves to the office. And sometimes this can look, I, I can get a little, to use a loaded word, triggered mm-hmm. uh, uh, by some of this because it can come off as pretty treacly, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, I'm how, how we're going to start every meeting with everybody talking about how they're doing, and then it collapses into all these you know discussions about their personal lives. Which actually, I I really do deeply see the importance and power of this. 
but there's something stylistic about it. Like, can we do this without sounding like, um, I remember Beavis and Butthead, the show, there's like a teacher in Beavis and Butthead who's an aging hippie and it just sounds, he just sounds like hopelessly kumbaya. Can we do this without lapsing into that? Is something that's on my mind. Yeah. Um, yes, I think we, I think we can. I, and I, I think that, uh, you know, it's interesting how, um, I was telling you, I think right even before we got started, that I I feel completely schizophrenic in that I'm I am really a business guy. I love I love business. I I have an MBA degree, and then I also am this you know this former Zen monk and 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 a lifelong meditator. And I think I think that if we can become more and more comfortable with what looks like these two worlds. We can find find skillful ways to walk walk what feels like that that edge of where there's a there is a focus on results there is a focus on what needs to get done, but at the same time we find ways skillful ways to to have people connect with to find ways that people can you know bring you know, maybe not their whole selves but they they can bring in themselves they they can show up as humans. We can do a little, even just a little bit of, you know, what, what are you, what, let's, let's have a little bit of a conversation about what are some of your challenges? What are some things you're finding challenging in your life right now? Or I like, I like even, you know, starting a meeting with, you know, let's, just for two minutes, uh, what surprises you about your life right now? Just to bring in a sense of that. We don't have to go right for the, you know, what's the strategic plan? What are we going to accomplish? That I found again and again, and this is one of the, I think, the real paradoxes of this world of whether it's mindfulness, meditation, emotional intelligence, it's actually good for productivity. It's really good. It's, people are so much more uh, productive when you allow them to face what's human, what's difficult. What they what they really care about? You know, I totally agree with that. But I guess my question is: do, Can we talk about it in a way that ha- retains some irony? You know, where we're not yes, you know, just barfing up our yeah. you know our viscera all the time. Where we can we can do that, right. but we can also have a sense of humor. We can make fun of each other, and it doesn't become precious. I think I think the yes the the sense of humor part and the lack of preciousness I think is a really key thing, and I think it takes uh, being really comfortable with with the way that you're presenting it and what it is you're trying to accomplish but sense of humor is that that should be um you know that should be practice number number 8 <laughs> <laughs> all right well what's 7 7 is keep making it simpler which in a sense i i uh, i would say that in order to make it simpler uh having a sense of humor about things simplifies things uh having a sense of what's really important what what really what really matters uh, to have a different relationship with what our problems are and to to keep but i think core practice is coming back to what really matters what's most important and also to be careful of the uh, the religion of busyness that is such a core part of life here in not only in the united states but all over the world uh, one of the stories i tell in this chapter is i'm i'm just getting this was when i was ceo of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, I'm getting onto a Skype meeting with a, a man and a woman who we were talking another from another company, and as soon as they came on, the 
woman looks at me and she says, are you as busy as we are? Mm. And I said, I thought to myself, I can take, I can kind of take a risk here and maybe a little bit of sense of humor. And I said, no, we, we don't do busy here. <laughs> and, and she, I could see, you know, she looked at me and I said, what we do is we do focused, engaged, and spacious. And I could see her partner, this guy was writing it down. I thought, oh, this is, this is good. They're not, um, they're not just going to blow me off here with my trying to have a teaching moment. But there is something about recognizing that um, busyness just makes things more complicated. And, and there's something about uh, being focused, engaged, and even spacious, even practicing a sense that when we notice that we're tight, when we notice that we're stressed in the middle of a workday, just to take a breath and just to practice for a moment, a moment of spaciousness in the middle of a busy day. But how do you, uh, busyness, a lot of us don't have a choice. I mean, our bosses are breathing down our neck. We've got kids at home. There's a lot of pressure on us. There's a, there's a lot of pressure. And, and, and one of the things that I've noticed, I work with a lot of uh, executives who have trouble turning it off, right? Who, when they go home, they, it's still like they're at work and they can't actually be with their kids. I think this is really a problem and something that medita- meditation practice and, and developing some practices and habits to be able to turn it off even for a few seconds in the middle of a busy day, but certainly during those, those core transitions. So when you're getting in your driveway or walking in your door of your house, to have a practice and a habit of of taking a couple breaths and letting it go and allowing yourself to fully now it's time to be home now it's time to either just take care of me take care of the people i live with be with my be with my family or even if it's even if you live by yourself there's nothing very healthy about being on all the time uh turn turn it off turn it off as a way to reduce some of the some of the busyness and it's it's challenging. There's that again going back to there's there is that that tension about um you know the tension about caring for people and getting stuff done is a really interesting core tension. The tension about self-care, spaciousness and and stress. There's there's tension. There's not like oh, I'm going to be spacious all the time. That's not that's not going to happen. But I don't want to be—I don't want to be stressed and tight and going full tilt all the time either. I want to be able to pay attention to my energy. I want to be able to notice when I'm feeling stress, when I'm going really hard, and and be able to say, you know, it's, I'm gonna—I'm gonna take—I'm gonna take a minute here just to just to relax, check in, notice my own my own body, my own breath, and then get back to work. There's no silver bullet here, but it's about navigating, uh, seeing clearly that this tension exists and doing your best to achieve some sort of equipoise. Yes. And having, and I think where these practices play such a, a great role. So part of it is loving, loving the work of noticing, of noticing when I'm aligned and when I'm not aligned. It's, even if it's not aligned, not aligned, not like, okay, I'm, I'm still, I'm noticing. This is, this is a little bit like following your breath you know, thought, thought, thought in meditation. It's the practice of remembering, the practice of noticing, not falling asleep. So two questions in closing. As promised, I do think it's worth talking a little bit about, we've invoked the name Mang a bunch. Um, 
so he, he there has been some controversy around him. Can, can you just tell us what that was and what your thoughts are about that, given that you uh, have a long relationship with him, but also that we're, we're talking about how to show up at work? Yeah. Um, you know, I actually know very little because I was I had already left the organization. Uh, all that I really know is that um, uh, I think that that the the Search Inside Yourself board asked him to step down as the chairman of the board, and I think that there were some there had been some accusations that he had made some people uncomfortable when he was an engineer at Google. That that's I don't I don't know not at Search Inside Yourself more. Old, previous, old, previous, old, yes, and these had to do when uh, my understanding was he made people uncomfortable in a, in a sort of it was gendered. It that, was yes. That, that's again, that's about what I know. And but what does this tell you about about because this is a big part of how we show up at work, and and we're in the Me Too era now, which I think is a very important thing. And um, what what kind of lessons can we take away from this? And and Me Too, by the way, has swept through the Buddhist and meditation world in a big way. Former guests on this show have, have really gotten caught up in it. I think um, uh, being, being human, uh, being, being human is really hard. You know, being a woman, being, being in the body of a woman, being in the body of a man, the, uh, some of the assumptions that we have about how we treat each other um, are now I think very importantly being re reexamined, re especially, you know, I mean, I, I used, I, I've been at, um, you know, business conferences where they were about, about people being awake and alive and, and over and over again, there'd be, uh, mostly men behaving badly. Uh, and it used to be, it's kind of mind blowing to me. And at the same time, uh, there's a lot that we need to, that we need to learn for ourselves and and I think um I think there's a I think men have a lot of work to do to uh in terms of um appreciating supporting men and and women. I agree. Um final final question is uh and I call this kind of facetiously the uh, plug zone. So just can you just plug everything you can start with a new book but I you've written other books and Anything else you want us to know about social media, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I can plug, right, Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader. Um, and my, my, my website uh, is marklesser, M-A-R-C-L-E-S-S-E-R dot net. Uh, I've written three other books. Um, the book that, I, that has done the best um, of mine is a book called Less. The subtitle is Accomplishing More by Doing Less. And... Um, at the moment, I'm out there doing trainings, workshops, keynote talks, coaching. That's what I'm doing now until until the next company I can feel in me. Like I like starting things. I like taking ideas and making them into things. And I'm, uh, I, I mentioned that to my wife and her eyebrows go up. You know, like, really? You're going to start another company? It's like, I think I, think I might have to. So yeah, we'll see. Thank you very much. Great Thank job. You. Thank you. Once again, big thanks to Mark Lesser. Time now for your voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, Dan. Uh, my name is Chris. Got to say I love the work. Uh, a couple min months into meditating, and I can already see a, a big benefit. But uh, in any case, uh, to my questions. Um, okay, first one is, what is your take on seeking out a person uh, 
uh, for meditation or a type of practice, an in-person practice versus, let's say, using your app or any other app. And by the way, I love your app. And uh, what, what is your take on actually, you know, being with someone one-on-one? Uh, is there a benefit to that versus the app? I'm sure other listeners may have that thought as well. Uh, secondly, um, I'm one of these guys that thinks way too much and uh, welcome to the club, I'm sure. And before I start meditating, sometimes, um, about two or three minutes in those thoughts, you know, prior thoughts before sitting and meditating kind of creep its way into the meditation. What are your thoughts on like taking two, three minutes just to write down and just do a mental dump? Uh, on a piece of paper just to get it out? Or is wrestling through that process beneficial to uh, the meditation uh, exercise, if you will? And I guess that's pretty much it. I'm I'm curious to your thoughts. Uh, Appreciate it. Uh, Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Two questions there. I think the first one I've talked about before, so I'll keep that one quick and get to the second one. The first one had to do with uh, the value of in-person meditation teaching as opposed to, I don't know, reading a book or you you said you use the app. Um, I think in-person is great and incredibly powerful. The the, the only reason to, to build apps, as far as I can tell, is is that, you know, most people either don't have access to uh, a great meditation teacher or don't have the time to go sit in a class. If you live in a city where there's a meditation center and you're attracted to go to to the way they teach and to go sit there uh, and learn from the teacher, I, I think that's a fantastic way to do it. I think that's the optimal way to do it. Do I think that can coexist with a practice that you're doing on your own, either you know, just doing self-guided meditation or using a, an app, whether it be ours or some of the other excellent apps that are out there? Yeah, absolutely. But But for sure, there is immense value to sitting uh, with a great meditation teacher. And and in my own practice, I do all of those things. Um, I do meditation on my own. I use guided meditations on uh, on the 10% Happier app. And uh, I have the enormous privilege of being able to uh, talk to Joseph Goldstein one-on-one. So go for it. Go for it if you've got uh, the option. The second question had to do with the fact that you're, you're kind of beating yourself up for thinking a lot during meditation. I think you know what I'm going to say to that, which is don't. I mean, I do it, so I'm a huge hypocrite. But try not to uh, beat yourself up for thinking too much during meditation because that is the human situation. We're, you know, we're thinking a lot, and that's not going to stop. So you asked whether uh, it would make sense because you're, you're finding that the stuff that you're thinking about as you head into meditation often shows up in meditation, which, by the way, I find zero percent surprising. And I don't mean that in a in any way, a dismissive way. I mean it to encourage you. I think it's totally fine that that's happening. But you asked whether it would make sense to, and I think your phrase was to to do a, like a mental dump of your uh, of all of the thoughts on a piece of paper before you sit to meditate. I've never done that, but I can't see why it would hurt. Try it. Try it out. See if it works. And then call me back and let me know. But I wouldn't be surprised that even if you did that, uh, those same thoughts came rushing back in uh, in meditation. I can guarantee you if those thoughts don't come rushing back into meditation, some other thoughts will come rushing back in. And then it's time to do the job of meditation, which is to notice that you're distracted from 
your breath or whatever it is you're you're focusing on in your meditation. Notice that some thinking is happening. Blow it a kiss. Make a mental note of, of, of wow, I'm thinking, uh, or this is anxiety, or this is fear, or anger. Uh, and then go back to the object of your meditation, breath or, or whatever, over and over and over again. That th- the, the moment you notice, I know you've heard me say this a million times, but you can't hear it enough. I can't hear enough, so I'm saying it for myself too. The moment you notice you've become distracted, that is not a failure. That's a victory. It's a victory. We've got to reframe this whole thing. It's a victory when you notice you've become distracted, and you should pat yourself on the back and go back to the breath and why, or, or whatever it is you're meditating on. And, and why is it a victory? Because, and again, I know I've said this a million times, but can't help it. It's a victory because when you notice that you have this crazy, tumultuous inner life, that this the voice in your head and your all of your unseen urges and impulses and they they can't own you in the way they, they that they have for all of your life and that's massive. All right, sounds like your practice is going well from from my semi-educated uh, perch. Thank you for the call, appreciate it. Uh, let's go to voicemail number two. Hey Dan, my name is Brett. Uh, thanks so much for everything you do. Uh, really love the show. I'm calling you from New York City. Um, I am probably, like many of your listeners, uh, sort of a classic career person who's recently gotten into mindfulness. And my question is, what lies in between the 10 minutes a day that a lot of us are are probably trying to carve out um, and appreciating, which is great, you know, things like your app are wonderful, um, but what lies in between that and sort of enlightenment, which I don't think is really in the cards for me? Um, but are there sort of levels or gradations of expertise um, kind of on that on that journey and that progression? Or is it just like, um, you know, every day, hopefully it helps you a little bit um, and, and you should appreciate that. Um, so that's really my question. Kind of is there sort of something to look forward to over the course of years? Um, or is it just kind of, you know, whatever you get out of it in, in that day? So thanks very much. Appreciate it. Bye. I think there's an enormous amount to look forward to, no matter what your dosage is, uh, whether you're doing just 10 minutes a day or whether over time you gradually increase that or decrease it. I, I, this is a skill, working with your mind, exploring your mind, not being so yanked around by whatever your ego is coughing up. This is a skill. And you just you you get better over time. It doesn't necessarily happen in a unbroken upward line. Uh, it can be a wavy, bumpy line. But overall, in my experience and in the experience of the people I know, the trajectory heads in the in the right direction. And um, you know, I'm stuck as I've said before with math jokes for the rest of my life because I wrote a book called Ten Percent Happier. But I, I, you know, uh, believe that 10%, like any good investment, compounds annually, and you will notice that your um, ability to focus and your ability to to self-regulate um, gets better over time, and that's just immensely valuable. Is is enlightenment in the cards? Look, I, I you know, I don't, I don't know. I can't make any claims about an experience I have not personally had. Um, I find it incredibly interesting, and you know, to talk to Joseph Goldstein, who by the who again is my meditation teacher, and who by the way is going to be uh, on this podcast very soon. So Joseph, uh, you know, uh, ha- has told me that uh, the many of the people he's seen experience some of the earlier 
stages of enlightenment? Because, again, in, in Joseph's school of meditation, it's a kind of four-stage process that uh, these are, to use his term, regular Joes, people who just made the decision to to commit to doing uh, long retreats over time. So, you know, I, I don't know that you're going to get there from uh, 10 minutes of meditation a day. And by the way, I still don't even know if there's a quote-unquote there there anyway. So, but... I'm not sure that uh, it's uh, accessible for, you know, on a dosage of 10 minutes a day, but I think a lot is, and that is just gradual improvement over the time, over time, getting becoming a better, happier, calmer human being. Uh, Joseph, speaking of Joseph, my, my colleague uh, Samuel Johns, who's one of the ace producers on the show, uh, sent me a list of questions that when, when people start worrying about the state of their practice – uh, Joseph has a list of questions that you can ask yourself that will give you a sense of, you know, are you making progress? Is this thing worth it? So there are 10 questions. I'll just read them to you. Uh, one is, are you less immediately reactive to difficult or stressful situations, both in meditation and in life? Two, over time, are you generally becoming aware of the wandering mind more quickly in the sittings? Three, in daily life, the feeling of rushing is a good feedback that we're ahead of ourselves, not being settled back in our bodies. Do you find that you're rushing less often or becoming aware of it more quickly? This, by the way, is just a huge thing for me. I notice because I'm overscheduled that I'm rushing all the time, and it's inc- very powerful just to notice the rushing. My first instinct is often to beat myself up for it, but then pretty quickly I'm like, oh, wait, no, no, the good news is you noticed it. And then actually, you know, maybe take a breath, and, and then for a nanosecond or two you're not rushing, and... And then the cycle begins again. Uh, Here's uh, the question. Here's number four from Joseph. Is there more awareness uh, with your speech, perhaps refraining a little more frequently from angry or judgmental speech? Still working on that personally. Five, is there a little more openness in being with other people, more willing to listen? Six, are you becoming a little more familiar with the qualities of calm and concentration in the practice? Seven, are you using the tool of mental noting? Is it becoming a little more continuous, at least for periods of time? Is the tone of the note becoming softer? Just in case you're new to the show, mental noting is just the, the, the technique of using a soft mental note when you notice you've been distracted. So you might notice, you might just say anger, anger in the mind, a little whisper in the mind. That's a, uh, a, a skillful use of thinking t- to orient you toward your direct experience. Um, so you can use that in your formal practice or when you're in the middle of a conversation with somebody with somebody who's really annoying you and, and notice anger is arising. You might make a little mental note in your mind, and then you're less likely to say something that you regret, perhaps. Here's question number eight. Is there a little more ease in being with whatever arises in your meditation practice, simply noting it for what it is? Nine, is it a little easier to sit longer? Ten, are you becoming somewhat more aware of the changing nature of all experience and holding on to things a little less? So just back to your question about what is there uh, between 10 minutes a day and enlightenment, I just I just want to double down on my unhesitating answer that there's a ton there um, in my experience. And I think those questions can illuminate the vastness of what's on offer here and the worthiness of this work. That's why we love Joseph. Thank you so much for your questions. Really appreciate it. Keep them coming. The number is in the show notes. Uh, you can call and ask anything. We really, we really love those uh, those questions. I want to thank the producers of the show, the aforementioned Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, and 
the ace, Ryan Kessler, who I'm looking at through a glass right now and I'm late in the evening and I'm keeping him from his family, so I should shut up soon. Uh, thank you again for listening. I'll see you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.